This episode of the AlexCast is brought to you interruption-free by The Standard. Please visit them in real life at 14 Northeast 22nd in glorious Northeast Portland. Portland is where we live. I don't know why I just spaced on that word. Find them on the vast and mysterious land called the Internet at facebook.com slash thestandardpdx. Please, let me list some of its attributes. There is. One pool table. There is. Four, maybe five pinball machines. There is. One of them mini-golf video games. I think there's one of those shooting deer video games. And shuffleboard. There's definitely shuffleboard. I've walked by that a bunch of times. There is a vending machine that is filled with various weird things, like goodie bags full of goodies. There is gambling. Kino. There is cheap beer. On Sundays, $3 microbrews. There is really cheap beer. On Wednesdays, $1 hams. There is Monopalova Mondays. That's where you can have Monopalova for Monday prices. Uh, four bucks, I think? I don't really know. Uh, Sundays, I said, Saturday is like another one, maybe? I don't know. I think that's, if you're an Oregonian, you get a discount. And then stuff happens on Tuesdays. And Wednesdays and Thursdays and Fridays and happy days. And then your cycle hums and you're grooving all week to you. This day is all my happy days. I don't know the lyrics to that song. The Standard. Be like Fonzie. Go to the Standard. A. Miracles can happen, people. And I am witness to one. To many, even. Oh, brave wonders, what we have seen this day. Praise to you, Jesus. Praise to you, Mohammed. Shiva. Haruman, the monkey god. Naga, the snake god. Tiamat, the other snake god. Quetzalcoatl, the feathered-plumed serpent. There's lots of snake gods, apparently. I just proved the Anunnaki. Mm, bless Buddha. And bless Ganesh, and Vishnu, and all those others. Bless you. For once, my audience asked me questions, and I have something to talk about. Oh, this is wonderful. I turned on a microphone, and I have my Twitter notifications open. Uh, Twitter dot com slash at the AlexCast. At the AlexCast. I don't know why I said Twitter.com. Everybody knows that part. But at the AlexCast, you can go and people ask me questions. And then on the Facebook page, people ask me questions. And so I have stuff to talk about. I turn the mic on. I'm like, oh, look, here's, here's a bunch of questions. And I can answer them. That was weird. I got high up into the answer them. It's me, Alex, the weird Alex cast voice. That was strange. I'm sorry for that. If this is the first time listening to the show, uh, listening to the show, please let me apologize. Um, that didn't make any sense. Um, but to be fair, if you've listened to the show before, that probably still didn't make a hell of a lot of sense. Uh, some segments will. Some segments won't. It's the nature of things. You just have to accept it. Become Buddha-like in your nature. That, my friends could be foreshadowing, because theoretically, I might get to that. But, I think we should start on a bit of a silly note. Maybe not a silly note, I don't know, let's find out what the questions are. So, in no particular order, I have questions from... Where do they start? Mr. Eden Penketh, at Monkey Magic Eden, who has been on this very show, at Blanks N Time, who I've answered questions on this very show. At El Rey de Canada. At Nutria Atomica, who I've answered questions from on this very show. Though to be fair, his question is, 
uh, he wants to come on to discuss the finer points of why that Max Landis wrestling thing was bullshit. I've not watched that Max Landis wrestling thing, uh, and I don't know if it's bullshit, but I trust him, and I very well may have on El Rey de Canada uh, to discuss why that Max Landis wrestling thing was bullshit, because there's a bunch of wrestling stuff that has happened recently, and I may talk about it with him. Who knows? Bricks and Bullets asked me, the ripple effect that bringing good jobs back to this country will have on society as a whole. I'm assuming bricks and bullets are from the United States. Because I can't answer... I mean, frankly, I can't answer that with the United States, but I may give it a guess. Bricks and bullets also asks my thoughts on baby boomer generations being responsible for all these emo kids, and how can we fix it? That might happen. At Ray Taylor, from the fabulous Inspired Disorder podcast, at Ray Taylor... He wants to know my thoughts on retrofitting a toilet with a bidet. Well, you know what? I might answer that as well. John C. Myers, frequent guest of the show, has a few questions. And they're silly. And Dustin Wetzel, never been on the show, has asked me uh, a kind of spiritual, philosophical, I don't want to say philosophical, because that kind of brings up a uh, existential query which I'm hoping I will get to. Let us begin. I read some of those out loud, and um, the reason I did that was because I didn't actually read most of them before I turned on the mic. No matter how much spell check I do, I will never do it well. And I'm pretty sure I just said spell check instead of show prep. Let's just rewind the tape and listen. No matter how many underage girls I do, I will not see what I did there. I was like pretending I was rewinding and then I said something horrific. But uh, when I say do, I meant uh, give beautiful haircuts to John C. Myers, the wonderful John C. Myers, who has been on the show many times and hopefully will come back on again, assuming the surgery goes well. He asks, could Sasquatch do sex magic? That is finally... An intellectual question. Finally, something I can just get my teeth right into. Sasquatch doesn't need to do sex magic because he's transdimensional. This has been discussed on the show ad nauseum. See, Bigfoot exists in a different dimension slightly to the side of ours, and he vibrates in and out of our dimension, which is why he's hard to catch and hard to film, and when he is filmed, he's blurry because he's actually in the middle of a shift to his home dimension. Now, since he has that kind of magic to enter into our world, I don't think he's going to need sex magic. But I know what everybody out there is asking right now, the obvious question. Well, what about in his home dimension? Can Bigfoot do sex magic? Of course he can. He has written volumes on the subject. All you got to do, pop over the universe next door, go to their Barnes & Noble uh, or uh, Powell's books. Uh, I'm sure they have it in Bigfoot World. Um, they're in the Northwest, so um, I'm sure they exist in the alternate universe. And just look in the sex magic uh, section of any given bookstore, and you're going to see just shelves uh, by Sasquatch, Bigfoot, um, Hairy Man, Skunk Ape. You know, just there's volumes. It, he's actually an expert. He's kind of like the um, Bigfoot's like the John D of the other universe. John D had long beard and was like a known alchemist magician. Bigfoot has long hair everywhere and is known to smell bad. It's not the best comparison I've ever come up with, but it did waste some time. Question number two. What can the theology of Spawn teach us about our own lives? Again, I'm glad you asked that question. I think the theology of Spawn can teach us many things. One, that clowns are mephitic. They are evil, and they should be destroyed using your sacred demon armor chains. <laughs> I don't really know much about Spawn. But John and I were sitting there watching a bit of the movie at the bar the other night, which, by the way, the uh, special effects in Spawn, the film, uh, I don't know if there's more than one, but the one from... I'm going to guess like 94 somewhere. I mean, it's maybe earlier, than, but it is 
Wow. There's there's these scenes in hell, or maybe they don't call it hell, but there are these scenes in, you know, ostensibly hell, uh, and he's fighting. You know, it's not like the the proper, like, you know, the 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 main boss devil, but like one of the a devilish uh fella. And the CGI on this devil, he looks like it it looks like if Ed Hardy wanted to design a demon in MS paint. It is just fucking awful. So, you know, check it out if you want if you want to laugh. But um teaches better lives. Well, yes, obviously the 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 um clowns are evil. Uh John Leguizamo, evil, who I think played the clown in that. Um and that that goes to our own life because Make sure not when you come back from the dead, when when John Leguizamo dressed like a clown brings you back from the dead and offers you a chance of revenge on the man who who who, who killed you. You want to make sure to decline that because this is the kind of this is that kind of Faustian deal you want to say no to. You know, so on those crossroads, that's good advice, and I think that's advice you want to take home because you know if I had a quarter for every time that happened, um, I'd have two fifty at this point. So, I'm getting there. I mean, definitely, definitely get a pack of Big League Chew for that. John also asks, "Which your five senses would you keep if you could only keep one?" Um, I think I'd keep my sense of white entitlement. Next question: Who would win in a fight, Elron Hubbard or Aleister Crowley? Weapon: bow staffs. Now, this is a really good question. I'm glad you asked. I know I say that a lot. I'm saying that because I didn't actually read all these before, and it gives me a second to think. It's like saying, um, or like, or, for instance, explaining the thing that you did before, because right now I'm trying to think of an answer. Given the power of time travel, in which they're both in their physical primes, and fighting with both staffs, I'm giving it to Crowley for this reason. Now, Hubbard may have some kind of physical background. I'm not sure. But Crowley was actually quite a good mountaineer in the uh, generation where mountaineering skills, uh, not skills, uh, what do you call it, like equipment, just blew. I mean, essentially, they like, they tied some yak hairs together and like glued it to the side of a cliff. And that's the thing that kept you hanging. Like it was just garbage. And he was apparently really good at it. Uh, so he was quite physically fit. And, um... Uh, yeah, so I think Crowley would definitely take him. And as far as, like, the gods are concerned, Crowley has the pantheon of all the Egyptian, the Sumerian, the Babylonian, any of the Abrahamic religions. I mean, he's got all of the gods that he can summon, all the all the uh, Order of the Angels, uh, the Enochian Angels, the, you know. So he's got a, a shitload of backup. Hubbard has... The evil Lord Xenu, who I think has exploded, and he got exploded by like B-52 bombers uh, that that dropped nuclear weapons. Now, I've not done the scientific rigor necessary to really say this for sure, but I think I can go out on a limb and say any Egyptian deity worth their salt could take a hit from a nuclear weapon. I don't think that's going to be a problem. Most of their existence is done in this uh, this kind of afterlife, kind of pseudo-life, uh, the duat. Which I think the duat is actually the area between life and the afterlife. But I don't think they're in a physical enough plane that essentially space 1950s bombers could blow them up with nuclear weapons. So, I know you said only bow staffs, but I feel like, especially with both of them, they're pretty underhanded people, especially Hubbard, because at least Crowley was on the fucking level about being a scumbag. He said, he said he's the, you know, the wickedest man, 666, etc. Elron Hubbard, like, pretended to be nice and thinks he could, you know, pretended to help people. So that's, that's gross and wrong, and I think that he would cheat. So... Either way, I'm going. I'm going with Crowley. Uh, I think Thoth would fashion up some pretty good weapons. He was like, you know, one of the smartest deities ever. And uh, so the deity side definitely got Crowley, and then just you know physicality, we got Hubbard. 
Though, unless somebody knows something about Hubbard that I don't know. I mean, he may have been uh, a Golden Gloves champion in his time. I don't know. But I'm guessing he isn't, because he looked pretty tubby, and he had bad teeth. I think that's him. Is he, he's the one, he's got like, the one picture I can think of in my head, he's got like, like a missing tooth and like a, he's wearing like a, like a jaunty little like sailor cap. I might be thinking of Popeye. Well, Popeye versus Crowley. Yeah, I still got Crowley. Because, I mean, really, Popeye's animated. So it's just a dumb thing to think about. Somebody asked me a question, I think, while, we're, while I'm talking. Yeah, let's find out. Oh, I don't know how to say your name. Red Dewitz. Sure. That guy that... Uh, uh, oh! <laughs> I'm an idiot. I take that back. Okay, that guy, who I just realized as I said his name, I know who that is. And he's... He, okay, I'm not going to spell it, because I think he has that account to not have a bunch of idiots on Facebook follow him. So, that guy. If you fought the law, would you win? I'm going to quote Judge Dredd, followed by Alistair Crowley here. One, I am the law. Two, do as thou wilt, shall be the whole of the law, and love is the law. And I could beat the shit out of love. I could, you have no idea how badly I could whoop love in a fight. I, I mean, it would be a slaughter. It would be like a Ronda Rousey fight. I would just snap Love's arm and neck within seconds. Do you know how strong my Kimura lock would be against Love? <laughs> love? Yeah, fucking right. Little bastard with his dumb diaper and bow and arrow. Well, he doesn't have a bow and arrow. That could hurt. Um, well, um, my Aunt Elaine, uh, just asked for the love of fuck, question mark. Uh, oh, that, cause that's what I put, for the love of fuck, ask me some questions. Uh, well, that's awkward. I hope she doesn't listen to this. If so, hi, Aunt Elaine. Did I say aunt? I usually aunt. That's weird. I'm getting thrown off now. I think, I think all of a sudden I'm turning back into my East Coast version. I can feel my hair getting greased back. My eye rock is revving in the garage. What? Oh, so I answered that one. Justin Johnson. Hey, look, guys, I'm answering these quickly. There's, there's going to be some good ones in a minute. If they made a sequel to Labyrinth, would David Bowie's crotch get a screen credit? Yeah. I think he got a screen credit on the first one. Uh, I mean, it's really... The only reason to watch Labyrinth is... Bowie's crotch and the juggling crystal balls, which talk about double entendre. Now, please talk about it because I have an hour to kill. Maybe we can talk about it. You know, double entendre, it's not a phrase in French. It's one of the weird things, you know. It's kind of French, French word, but they don't use the phrase double entendre. How odd. It's not that odd, Alex. Good point. Justin asks, why does gyro meat taste so... And then I'm not going to bother to answer because I'm a vegetarian and I don't know what gyro meat tastes like. So, haha, your questions are terrible. No, your questions are fine, thank you. He's the only person that ever calls in. Oh, by the way, if you ever want to call in, 503-468-6959. You can uh, call in, leave silly questions there. Uh, let's get to a few more. Um, I said I read them before, and I kind of regret it. Oh, Eden, at Monkey Magic Eden. Favorite documentary, and what song drives you mad and why? Uh, well... Eden is from that place over there. What's that? Uh, the Final Countdown? Europe. Drives you mad, I'm assuming means, like, uh, is irritating to me, uh, is the question. Because we, we would say drives you crazy, and I'm not sure if mad has a different kind of wording. The reason I say this is in, in Europe land, they say, uh, he's quite pissed. Uh, now, now, to Americans, if you're not familiar with this this phraseology, uh, what would you guess? He's quite pissed means. Well, you would be wrong, and the ones that guessed right, you would be right. So attribute that uh, as you will. Uh, he's very pissed means he's very drunk, 
while in America being pissed means to be angry. Which, I mean, if we really think about it, theirs makes, um, actually, they, really, they both make the same amount of sense. I guess, well, there's, you know, the pissed, like, yeah, you've drank enough that you have to urinate. Probably makes more sense than you have so much urine in you that you're now angry. But, I mean, they're both not all that good. Anyway, uh, something drives you mad and why, uh, I had just another Manic Monday stuck in my head, uh, yesterday, because it was Monday, and I was using these little, uh, short-term rental cars that my city has, uh, Portland, they're called Car2Go, and you wave a little card on the window and you rent your little smart car for, you know, five minutes and then you drop it off anywhere in the city, you wave your card on the window and it locks itself and somebody else takes it later and you go off on your merry way. So I was driving in that, uh, and the song Manic Monday by whoever did that song, that 80s song, uh, came on. Whitney, no, what's her name? Debbie Gibson? Was that Manic Monday? I don't really care. So that was, the, and uh, I heard, like, just another, and before I changed the channel, the station, whatever you call it, on a, on a radio, and I couldn't have been more annoyed because it's instantaneously in my head for the rest of my life. And that's obviously hyperbole, but it's been stuck in my head since then, and that was yesterday at 9 a.m. So I'm very close to suicide at this point. So that song drives me mad. And why? Because it just sticks in your head like, like, it's like fucking song Velcro. It, it is... Yes, so Manic Monday by whoever does that song. Might be Debbie Gibson. Do you have a favorite documentary? Weirdly enough, this is not my favorite, but I would like to bring it up. There's a documentary about Debbie Gibson or the other one. Um, I get them confused with it. It's called I Think We're Alone Now. Whoever did that song, I think we're alone now. I'm typing into the internet and it will return. Okay, that's by Tiffany. And it's a documentary. And um, it came out in 2008. Wait, hold on. I'm going to redo the, the thing because... I don't remember... Okay, so it's two individuals, Jeff and Kelly, claim to be in love with the 80s pop singer Tiffany. Uh, so, I don't remember which one... Oh, I guess Kelly is the... So Jeff is a... I guess he's... I don't think that this term is actually in use anymore, but uh, at the time, I think he referred to it as having Asperger's. Um, Asperger's, that word. I can't say it without sounding like it's a burger made of butt. But he is kind of Asperger-y, and... He's obsessed with Tiffany, obviously. That's, you know, that's what it says on the tin. And he's interesting. At one point, he's got a helmet with crystals on it. Uh, to I don't really know. It's like uh, that scene with the uncle and Napoleon Dynamite, but this is for real. And you know what I'm saying, for real, in heavy quotes. And then Kelly is a... Uh, uh, transgender? Is that the proper term? In transition person. I don't... I'm not being uh, flippant. I just, I don't know the the non-offensive term. So the non-offensive term for uh, somebody that was born uh, a fella and wants to be a lady. Uh, and yeah, it is really, really disturbing. Not disturbing in like a, a stalkery way. I mean, there's a, there's a stalker vibe to it, but it's disturbing in a, I don't know how to word like a starkness to it. Uh, there's just this kind of, oh, I'm going to sound like such a douche, but a, a raw reality to it that just kind of hits you and it, and it's, it sits weird. And that's, that's my favorite kind of documentary. The ones that kind of leave you feeling a little like off and you're like, oh man, I, I like, I don't know what happened here. And it's, you know, I, I obviously if you listen to the show, I read and watch about a lot of weird shit. Watch about? Yeah, because that's grammar. But I read and also watch weird stuff. So to find something that hits me on a weird level usually resonates. So I think we're alone now is one. I also, uh, and this one is, well, on one level gross, on another level because I do leave at some point. Oh, no, because the one guy's like totally actually guilty. But uh, uh, Meet the Freedmans, I think it's called. Meet the Freedmans, I think is the name of it. Oh, Capturing the Freedmans. I was close. So, 
Capturing the Freedmans is a documentary, and it started out, and, and I'm, I'm sorry if I get this slightly off, but it starts out as they were going to make a documentary following the most popular uh, clown on Long Island in, in New York. And as this guy's uh, kind of looking into him, it turns out that his father was convicted of child, like, sex abuse uh, in the 80s. And it was this big high-profile case. And this whole story uh, kind of unravels, or, or, you know, you know what I'm saying? Like, just... Man, I suck at words tonight. What am I trying to say? This is very... Not unravels. It spools off, unspools from, I can't think of things. That's what happens. And he starts uh, changing into the story of the um, sex abuse case. It's done with home videos of the Freedmans because they uh, were very kind of camera obsessed. And it's super disturbing. And it's, it leaves you, and I'm, I'm trying to, this part, I'm being stammering for a reason, because I don't want to give away any kind of spoilers. It, does, it doesn't spoon-feed you the answers. It leaves you in an in awkward place, and... Yeah, it's super interesting. It really makes you... I don't, it, yeah, it just leaves you in this place where you kind of... You see characters that are that are interesting and likable, but then theoretically could be horrible, but then, you know, it, this is so hard to say without, without giving anything away, but it's a, it's well worth the watch. Uh, Capturing the Freedmans is the name of it. Yes, I like that one very much. And the other one is Dear Zachary, which, uh, without spoilers, if you're not in the mood for something really heartbreaking, don't watch this, because it's a doozy. Uh, basically, it's a film... This guy, um, really popular fella, don't remember his name off the top of my head, but his friends liked him, you know, let's call him Peter. So old Pete uh, goes and dies, and his best friend is compiling video from Pete's life, uh, and his, uh, shortly after he died, interviewing people that knew him, and he was compiling this whole uh, video series, uh, you know, so Zachary, the fellow that dies' son, could get to know his father because, you know, his son was super young when, when, you know, old Pete died. And so that's the deal. So he's, that's the premise of the film. That's the premise of why they started recording. Over the course of it, it's kind of revealed that Pete may have been killed by the mother of his child. And then it gets deeper and then there's a trial involved and there's, like, extradition treaties from Canada involved that it gets weirder and deeper, and it is a, it is just an emotional, just stab through the heart at some parts, and, yeah, I highly recommend it if you're in the mood for something emotionally devastating. I don't know why you would be, but we all often get in that mood, which actually, that'd be a good topic at some point. Why the hell would we subject ourselves to things like that purposefully? Like, hey, you know what I'm going to do with my night? I'm going to use the power of the internet and, and, and Netflix and all the, all the wonderful things that's, that's living in this modern world has put us that instead of being happy, I want to watch stuff that's going to make me weep hysterically. Yay! So there's your answer, Eden. And you've probably seen all those because they're quite well known. Blanks and Time asks me this. If a fly was on an airplane, would he be able to tell how fast it was flying? Well, no. Well, let me, okay, wait a second. So a fly is, in, you're saying inside of the plane? I don't know why I'm asking you, because you can't hear me right now. I mean, if you're hearing this, you're hearing me right now, but I said these words a while ago. So if a fly was on an airplane, would he be able to tell how fast it was flying? Uh, well, if he's inside, obviously not, because in the same way, if we're inside an airplane, we can't see how fast we're going. You can see that, you know, you can intellectually know that. If he was on an airplane, like on the outside, I mean, I think he would know how fast we're going, except for the fact they wouldn't be able to hold on. He would just be thrown off violently. So, no. And also, I don't think flies actually have that kind of 
spatial awareness or ability to uh, guess velocity or speed. So I'm going to say no all around. Or if we're talking about Jeff Goldblum, yes, he would because he was very smart because he invented those teleporting machines and then later Brundlefly. So the answer is no, 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 unless Goldblum, then yes. Bricks and Bullets wants to describe the ripple effect that bringing good jobs back to this country will have on society as a whole. I would love to answer this, but I will give you a half-assed answer. No, I won't. You know, I don't know. Here's the thing is... Yeah, I don't know. I mean, from what I understand, and I, I'm certainly in no way uh, an economist. Uh, in fact, I don't really know the economy that well, as you're going to see right now via this demonstration. We are a debt-based economy, from what I understand. It's like, basically, we trade on our debt because we are such a solvent and kind of badass nation that we aren't going to default on it, so we're a good place, so we can take loans. And borrowing off those loans, people borrow off of us, and then it's kind of like, basically, we're trading, like, IOUs, almost. It's, it's kind of my understanding. Like, there's no, there's no, um, gold behind, gold or silver behind our bills. It's the concept of debt. And because we're such a, uh, you know, we haven't fucked up horribly as a country yet, like we haven't declared bankruptcy yet, uh, we're trading on that. So I don't know if you bring a bunch of good jobs to the country, if that would actually fuck anything up or, or make it better. Like, Taking, like, bringing jobs back to this country means that there's more jobs, taking jobs from another country. In that we are a country that's debt-based, that debt has to be from somewhere else. Another country. So, if we start taking away the, the, the workers, so the, you know, the people that would have quality jobs in those other countries, bring it to here, I don't know if the detrimental effect on that country would affect us enough well, you know what I'm saying uh, oh god I'm just, <laughs> this makes sense in my head but I do not have the economic word for it I mean the the negative impact of taking uh, the workers that are not working in the United States now and making us a viable place to work the negative impact on the places that would normally have those workers I wonder if that negative impact is greater than what would be the positive impact on the United States because we are so ingrained in everyone else and because everything's based on debt and loans and et cetera, et cetera, that we're in this kind of balancing act that I don't know if that would hurt things on a world scale. I mean, it probably would hurt things slightly on a world scale and help us in the immediacy, but I don't know if hurting them is going to... You know, that, that hurt is going to, like, you're taking away seven whistles and you're bringing in, you know, so it's, you're, you're taking six whistles from a country, right? And that does eight whistles worth of damage, but we're only taking in six. That made no fucking sense. I really hope what I just said in my stammering made sense. Basically saying the, the detrimental effect to everyone else, I don't know it would, I think it might be higher than the positive effect for us. I think that's why we're kind of allowing other countries to have near us to have like Mexico back when the whole NAFTA thing went down, where having cheap labor there allows our goods to be cheaper. You know? So if we have good labor here, I think our goods might go up because there won't be cheap labor. You know, it's like if China paid their people a living wage, we wouldn't have cheap iPhones, cheap whatever, because all that money would go back. Yeah, so I think there's... A, I would like to have an economist explain this, because I think I've got the right idea. I just think I've described that in probably the dumbest way any human being has ever tried to talk about uh, any kind of economic theory ever. I mean, I'm pretty sure... That was up there with that scene in Billy Madison where he's like trying to describe the dog that ran away and make it a comparison to world uh, things and, and the, 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 the proctor there goes like, that is the dumbest thing I've ever heard. And he just goes on this rant about how incredibly stupid the answer was. I'm pretty sure that's what I did right there. But to be fair, I have a show that often focuses on occultism and I have a degree in fucking poetry. 
You asked the question, you deserve that answer. Follow-up question. What are your thoughts on the baby boomer, baby boomer generation being responsible for all these emo kids and how can we fix it? Uh, I don't think that's true, frankly. I, I think it's just, as every generation ages, we blame the shittiness of the next generation on the one previous. There's um, this bit of Roman graffiti that I really like to reference. It basically, they found it, you know, let's say in Pompeii or whatever, but there's like a, just basically scribbled on the side of the wall is, is uh, you know, kids these days are losing all, uh, losing all the standards and morals that we had in our day and everything's going to hell in a handbasket, essentially. And that's from like, you know, 700 BC. So this complaint of the generation before us being responsible for the, the how shitty and weird this generation is, it's, it goes back as far as we can find it. And yeah, I don't think it's true. Um, I have no problem with emo kids. And I mean, I have problems with them, but in the same way, I would have a problem with any kid, like anybody, like, I mean, if you're emo and you're like, I don't know, 27. Yeah. All right. Well, then you, that's, you know, then you got some issues like anybody that's like kind of young and stupid you know be young and stupid and wear weird clothes that's cool because frankly you can be young and stupid and wear you know you can be young next to the emo kid and look like completely normal you're still a fucking idiot you know you're a kid you're supposed to be stupid i think you're supposed to be incredibly stupid till about um i don't know when can you stop being incredibly stupid i think i started to stop i think my like beginning stage of not being a fucking idiot. I mean, I'm still a fucking idiot, but uh, improving from lowest point idiocy towards slowly crawling towards maybe by the time I'm dead, I won't be a complete idiot. I feel like 23. I mean, I probably started a little bit earlier, but like, you know, you need to turn 21, act a fool. I feel like, yeah, about 23. So after 23, if you're, if you're an emo kid, but you're 27, yeah, okay, we can start blaming the baby boomers, but, you know, we could have blamed, you know, the baby boomers could have blamed the ones before them, and et cetera, et cetera. But, yeah, I think that's just a thing that happens. Everybody hates the generation after them. It's just, it's just a natural thing. Aging sucks. It's a deal. I have gray in my hair now. Like, I still feel like a kid, but I have gray in my hair. It's horrible. The whole thing's horrible. We're just slowly falling apart. I think that's part of it. I think that's why you hate the next generation, because you're like, oh, look at you. You still get to be young and stupid. Oh, God, that would be great. Oh, you young and stupid people being great. Also, here, this will probably make you feel old. I don't know how old you are, Bricks and Bullets. But, um, the emo kids are actually the kids of the Gen Xers now. How depressing is that? Think about it. Gen Xers, that starts in, like, 1960. Because they're the kids of the baby boomers. The Gen Xers are... They're getting up there on the far end. So, emo kids, they're the kids of Gen Xers, not baby boomers. So I blame the Gen Xers. Frankly, I think it's Kurt Cobain's fault. And I think someone should shoot him. Maybe someone did. Bum, bum, bum. There's a documentary out right now that claims uh, Kurt Cobain was murdered by one of the investigating police people. I haven't seen it. I'm sure it's a really valid theory and totally good and, and you know, it's probably, you know, changed some minds, you know, because steel doesn't melt at that thing and airplanes can't kill somebody in Seattle. Ray Taylor, I want to know your thoughts on retrofitting a toilet with a bidet attachment. I have plenty of thoughts on this. You know why? Because if you go into the bathroom the facilities, the water closet, the loo. In the Echo Chamber Studios, home of the Alex cast, home of nothing else, there's a bidet attachment on the toilet. You want to know my thoughts on it? It's fucking delightful. I am so glad I got it. I'm a big fan. Lovely. Much better than toilet paper. I'm not one to talk about scatological things on the show. I will make poop jokes, but talking about it in any, any kind of depth, you will not hear much in-depth discussion on the uh, nature of uh, the byproduct of food or the orifice that it leaves. Because, well, let's face it, I like to have some amount of cordiality on the show because everything else on the show is a raging 
pile of awful jokes and, and terrible things because I'm a terrible person. But without giving details away, I was told he wasn't told, maybe I saw it on... Either way, somehow this fact got in my head that countries that ha that use bidets uh, don't have uh, piles or hemorrhoids or um, anal fissures or um, sphincter death or um, butt rot or uh, asshole burn or... Um, or trench sphincter. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know the names of anything. In fact, this first three I'm not entirely sure about. The point is, I heard that and I'm like, oh, that sounds, uh, that's, that's interesting. And I've never really used a bidet when I heard this. And then, uh, shortly thereafter, somebody else mentioned this. And then I was talking on the internet to somebody in Europe. That's that place where Eden's from. And they said that they have them there and they're wonderful. And I said, well, too bad I don't live in Europe because I have to, uh, not have a bidet because I live in America and I live in an apartment, I certainly can't install another thing. And someone said, no, you can just put a bidet attachment on your dumb American toilet. I said, wait a second. There's no way a bidet can take the size of my giant fat American ass because I'm American and I'm obviously super overweight because that's what we are in America. Fat, dumb consumers. This isn't all that um, kind of parody at this point because I actually am fat. But I'm not that dumb. And I don't really consume that much. The point is, I went on Amazon, and I found out that bidet attachments are super cheap. Cheap enough that I thought, ah, fuck it, I'll give it a go. I mean, what's the worst that can happen? You know, like, I waste 50 bucks and, you know, my butt feels cold. I got it. And I installed it. Um, the installing process, installation process, as people that use the language would refer to it as, was emasculating because I'm not good at uh, plumbing. And to say that there's plumbing involved in this is is, is to say that using Legos is uh, practicing architecture. It is the easiest thing in the world. So for me, it took close to five hours and a trip to the local true value hardware store. But I finally did get it installed, and it works. And I'm a fan. You save on toilet paper costs, and, um, yeah. And you can be all suave and European. And when you have random girls to your apartment, as people do, not me, I have guests to the apartment, and some of those guests have referred to it as my space toilet, which I find fun. Yeah, so, uh... Yeah, you can get one. Uh, here's the thing. I have heard... Uh, that they were done, I heard. I know there's fancy ones that have, like, heated water and different settings and things. Mine just has, like, a little a little knob. And it's just basically uh, a light spray or a... Um, like a... Like a... A torrent of... 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 of, of just... Just a cleansing power wash setting, and there's no heat. Now, that did take a bit to get used to, uh, the, the, the non-heated thing. Uh, so if you're in a, in a cold environment, uh, I, w I would recommend maybe getting the one with heat attachment, because you do get used to it, but it doesn't get that cold here. So I think if you're in, like, uh, Alaska, and being warm is kind of necessary to you, you know, not dying, you probably don't want to spray a thin membranous area that has lots of blood flow uh, with cold water because then your core temperature will drop and you can die via bidet. And you don't want death by bidet. You don't want it. That's more talk about bidets than I ever thought I would have on this show. That's so it goes. So I don't know if I can answer this question, but I will give it a try. Hold on. I'm drinking a really shitty root beer. Oh, God. And, um, like, actual root beer. Like, no alcohol or anything. And I won't name it, because I just called it really shitty. But it's, uh, like a hippie root beer that's local. 
It's made from, you know, I don't know, like grass-fed sugar somehow. <laughs> um, you know, the, 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 whatever the root is was like hugged out of the ground. <laughs> I don't, yeah, I don't really know, but it's, um, it kind of, it tastes, you know, what it tastes, it tastes like a uh, used bidet water. That's not, it's not that bad, but, uh, yeah, not good though. Definitely lacks good. Like it doesn't embody bad, but it lacks good. It's like, hey, you know what you should have put in this root beer? Uh, some delicious. So you forgot that when you're putting stuff in. Uh, you, you forgot the delicious. So maybe next batch. Sorry. All right. I think I've talked, well, okay, I've, I've brushed on this before, but I want to kind of bring this up again because I've been thinking about this a lot. And it might be Alex tells personal stories about his fight with depression time. Dawson asked me, um, why do good, awesome people like me continue to suffer in this crappy ass world? Ass was in capitals. Wow, too much. Step it back a bit. Talk about the nature of suffering. I claim that all, oops, sorry. I claim that all suffering comes from bias. Uh, whether it be positive or negative, we all know racism is bad, but so is favoritism. You're the Buddhist, after all. In the event that you do address this topic, let me know. Honestly, I've never listened to your radio broadcast. Hey, be happy I bought your books. But I'll listen to this one. If you're drunk enough to be insightful without slurring your words. Well, I'm on fire. Fire, capital letters. You're wrong. You're. I'm saying that because I feel like you're being a little jabby at me. Because one, you've never listened to the show. How could you possibly make an intimation that I would be too drunk and slurring? You've never listened to the show. You would not know if I am drunk and slurring often on the show. I am not. I am often over-caffeinated and stammering like I am tonight. Zondern, however, I'm not a Buddhist. Never have been. I, as far as the doctrine of various religious systems, Buddhism is the one that seems to make the most sense about what I've perceived in the world but I am not a Buddhist by any stretch. I just think that some of their core principles uh, seem to me to be true, but I wouldn't call myself that. I don't like calling myself anything, because the second you call yourself something, you've allied yourself with a system and a list of traits and a list of attributes, and I don't like that. Like, I, for the most part, now let's not qualify it, if you looked at the diet that I eat, one would call me vegetarian. I would be, I would fit that quite well. I do not call myself a vegetarian much. I mean, I do in the, it's in a brief thing, like earlier when we we're talking about, Justin was asking about gyro meat, uh, I said vegetarian because it was funnier to say it that way, but I don't actually call myself a vegetarian. Uh, like for real, because I don't like belonging to groups because then they speak for me. It's like, I would like to be, like, I'm kind of a spiritual person. I would never say I'm spiritual because the other spiritual people are a bunch of asses and I don't want their attributes to kind of melt on me. So I don't belong to things. Uh, so I'm not a Buddhist and some of their beliefs I, I don't really go with, but close enough. Anyway, just to be sure, because I don't like to, um, you know, it's like, uh, it's like, what's I call it? It's like stolen valor. It's like I'm wearing a, a, a Buddhist uniform to a, to a mall and trying to get free stuff from the gap. That, if you know what I'm talking about, that was vaguely funny. If you don't, that made no fucking sense. So, um, the nature of suffering. Um, well, uh, I mean, there's a, I mean, there's a lot to it. Okay. So, the Buddhist perspective is this, and this, this is the part of Buddhism that I very much agree with. Well, there's 12 aspects, but there's the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. So, the Four Noble Truths are, um, I'm bringing out the, um, this is, this is what it says on this random website. Uh, so, all life is suffering. Ooh, I don't like the way they word this. Forget it. <laughs> I'll do it in my own words. So, uh, life is suffering. Uh, there is the origin to suffering is, uh, desire is, is the want of things or just the want. It's desire and attachment. Attachment's a key word. So desire, attachment, mold those together. There's a way 
to end that suffering by ending that attachment. The way to end that is the Eightfold Path. The Eightfold Path goes like this. It's right understanding, uh, right actions, or right, right, yeah, right, uh, what are they worded here? Right aspiration. Right effort, right speech, right conduct, which is probably more right action, right livelihood, right mindfulness, right concentration. Now, those are all pretty straightforward, basically, you know, whatever, that, and you can argue about the points there. The main point is, life is suffering, it's the, um, all life is suffering in that, almost in a Darwinian sense, like, life is based on suffering, uh, it's, it's death, it's fighting for resources, it's attachment to things, and that's where human suffering on the existential front comes from as well, is, is attachment to concepts, attachments to ego. The way to get rid of that is to stop clinging, is to rid oneself of ego. Uh, and probably the way to do that is via this eightfold path, is um, understand that you are, understand your clinging, desirous nature and find a way out of it. And one of the ways out of it is the eightfold path. And that's the part I don't agree with. I don't disagree with it, but I don't, I, God, that sounds completely insane. What I mean to say is that's not a bad idea. Like those eight things are fine. I just feel like there's more of a subtlety to it. It's more of a, I think to say that do those eight things puts you into this, um, kind of Christian framework. And my Christian framework, or even, even Judea, just the, the concept of any religion that has like a covenant between man and God. So it is not if you do these eight things, then you will receive uh, nirvana. It's, this is an observation of life. Uh, the observation of life is, you know, life is suffering. Uh, in order to stop that suffering, uh, in order to stop suffering is you would stop desire. That's the stuff I agree with. One of the ways to do that is the Eightfold Path. But the Eightfold, the Eightfold Path is, feels a little bit too much. Do this. It's, it's like if else. It's, uh, first, second. It's a little too linear. So, for me, it's the focus on things. So, uh, my problem is, uh, the reason a lot of my suffering, and I'm honest with it, I've talked about it on the show before, I suffer from very severe depression at times, well, at times, most of my life, and, uh, at times very severe anxiety, and that comes from, and I do recognize it as, from attachment. I'm attached to ego. I'm attached to the concept of me. And when I was younger, I used to be a massive egotist. I mean, just a, just a giant ball of, holy God, someone should punch me. And I'm not saying I'm a fucking saint now, but through kind of revelation, practice, meditation, being completely humbled by life, I find myself in a little bit better of a state. But still, my suffering, I know, comes from that. Comes from the attachment to ego. And understanding that is kind of that first step. It's that next step that gets weird is following that Eightfold Path, I do most of those. You know, it's, um, other than right livelihood, but right understanding? Yeah, I got that. Right aspiration. So, making commitment to living your life uh, in the way that ends suffering? Doing that. Right effort? Doing that. Right speech? Trying to do that. Right conduct? Definitely do that. Right livelihood? Nope. Right mindfulness? Trying. Right concentration? Trying. So, I'm, you know, heading there. I'm doing most of those things. But I feel like that's not, like, if I, even if I ticked off all eight that doesn't liberate yourself from, from suffering. So, from your question, is this. I mean, your bias thing is there, but that's kind of the Buddhist aspect, too, is, so you say, uh, I mean, I'm sure you're being um, rather facetious here, but why do good, awesome people like you continue to suffer? Well, even saying that you're a good person is, uh, is that, is attachment to ego, is... By calling, that's actually a negative statement. By you saying you're a good, awesome person means that other people are not. If you're out there arguing, yeah, but there are some shitty people. No, there aren't. Because that's attaching yourself to the concept of good, evil. You're, you're, or you're even just good and bad. You're attaching yourself to this. The point of it, the cessation of suffering, is the cessation from desire. So you're not attaching yourself to any of these concepts. All you're doing is trying to find a way to detach. To, to it's, the samsara is is uh, and and uh, becoming bodhisattva, becoming getting enlightenment is detachment from ego, detachment from self. 
is understand you know is is understanding the kind of the greater mind. So making any compare any comparison, saying you're an awesome person, is actually putting somebody else down, which is not right speech or right action, and that would be bias. You're biased towards yourself. The the Buddhist way, and this is another part that I don't particularly agree with, and a lot of um, other thinkers at the time where Buddhism was first you know sprouting said that Buddhists don't do anything. They're not involved in life. And that's kind of part of my problem because a Buddhist, a true Buddhist would be just sit under the tree and get enlightened. Don't care if there's wars. Don't, you know, you're not supposed to be, you're not attached to your family, uh, no attachment to anything. It's just, you're, you're trying to detach from everything. And that is how you achieve liberation. And there are far more complex arguments to be had why that's, why there's arguments to it. I'm not going to say why that's not true, but I do find there's a little bit of detachment. So how do we use this Buddhist thing? My favorite parable in the history of parables, I shall poorly recount thusly. There is a mountain in Tibet, sure. No, fuck it, let's just say somewhere in India. In Japur. In Japur, there is a mountain. And there's a monastery there, Buddhist monastery. And there's an old master who has achieved... Samsara, uh, I think I'm saying some, I think Samsara is the wrong term. Either way, he's a bodhisattva. He's, he's achieved enlightenment, but he decided to stay on earth to help other people. And there's this guy, a monk, Buddhist monk, and he's been at that monastery for, I don't know, five years. Long time, right? Five years? So, uh, the monk says, Master, I, you know, I meditate every day. Uh, I know the nature of the fourfold truth. I meditate on Buddha every day. Uh, I know the Eightfold Path. I try to do the Eightfold Path. Um, how do I achieve enlightenment? How do I, how do I cross this line? So the master says, uh, well, I, you know, I will tell you, uh, how I did it. I will tell you how we can do this. And, you know, that is my job as, as a teacher. And the student says, oh, good. Okay. So please tell me. Well, first, can you please run down the side of the mountain to the stream at the bottom with your two buckets and your stick and please fill up the buckets with water and bring it up to the top. You may recognize this as the beginning to any given Kung Fu film made by the Shaw Brothers or early Jackie Chan. And I think it was even in Kill Bill. So runs down the cliff with his stick and empty buckets, fills up two buckets and slaves his way back up the hill, just his shoulders aching. Buckets of water are heavy. Big, big hill he's walking up. Puts it down. He says, oh, all right, master, here's the water. Um, this is what you ask. Can you, can you tell me how to achieve enlightenment now? And he said, well, you know, I, I, I will teach you, but, uh, it is getting late and, um, we can have a fire and I would like to t teach you by a fire. So there'll be light for us to teach you about enlightenment and all this seems fair. So the student says, oh, good. Okay. Well, I will learn by the fire. So the master says, please go out and chop some firewood for us. So the student goes outside, says, well, I want to chop the best firewood I can. I'm going to make sure the logs are this perfect size so they burn great and we don't have to pay attention to them. It's going to be like the best fucking fire ever. So he chops the wood, piles it up, brings it back into the master. The master's sitting there and says, oh, okay, well, good, wood. So he's, they make the fire. And he says, well, master, will you teach me now, now that we have a fire and we have water? And he says, of course I'll teach you now. What was your question? And, and the student says, well, how do I achieve enlightenment? You know, I study the Four Noble Truths, I study the Four Path. How do I achieve enlightenment? And Master says, carry water and chop wood. And the student says, yes, I've already done that. And he says, well, that is how you achieve enlightenment. You carry water and you chop wood. And she says, so I just carry water and I chop wood. And he says, yeah, you carry water and you chop wood. And the student says, well, what do I do after I achieve enlightenment? And the Master says, you carry water and you chop wood. That's my favorite parable. I don't know if it counts as a parable. But I like it because that's the point. Is you don't follow eight things and then you achieve nirvana. You don't... It's not, it's not a covenant with God. There is no God. I mean, not... You know, maybe there is, but it's, that's not part of the equation here. This is about the way to liberate oneself from suffering. And the way to achieve that is in to use a the hindu variant of this word dharma is right action is what you're intended to do so you chop wood and you carry water 
that is your rightness. And you do right things and continue to do that until you achieve enlightenment. Not that's what you do and therefore you will achieve enlightenment. This is what you do and you may not do it. You may just die. But the point is you, you're there doing it. You're in that moment. And being in that moment is the concept. That is the enlightenment. That is, as, as Ram Dass would put it, uh, to be here now, to be in the moment. That is true enlightenment. That is become a master. So, you know, how do you become a master? You chop wood and you carry water. What do you do after you become a master? You chop wood and you carry water. It's you do the work. You, in my case, my, my dharma, my, my right action is writing. Is I, in an ego sense, when I first wanted to write or put out books, the thought was somewhere in my head is, oh, I'll be the next big writer. You know, I'll be, I'll be the next Neil Gaiman. You know, I'll be the next whatever. And when the Voyagers came out, and it didn't sell that many copies, but it's poetry, so I wasn't expecting it to sell that many copies. But that kind of took a little bit of a hit from that belief system. So I finally finished Periphery, the novel, which, by the way, people, it's available on Amazon.com. Just look for Periphery by Alex Bolin, or just look on AlexCast.com. You can find the link. When that didn't, when that didn't sell like a million copies, and you know, I do. Um, I do uh, kind of overstate how few it sold. I sold enough. I mean, I sold plenty. But um, it didn't catch on. And doing that kind of got me to that carry water, chop wood point where, not to say that I'm never going to be the next big thing, but that's not a thought anymore. That's not an end line. That's... I'm just writing the next book. I'm writing uh, some short stories. I'm just writing. I'm, I'm chopping wood. I'm carrying water. I'm living in the right way as best I can. And as I do that, maybe enlightenment comes. And even saying maybe enlightenment comes is the wrong thought because you're not, you're not trying to work towards enlightenment. You're trying to accept the, the basic premise of the Four Noble Truths. And by accepting that, that's the point. It's, you know, it's almost like that's, it's the journey that matters, not the destination kind of thing. But I hate that phrase because of course it's destination. It would be walking places, but it's a very kind of uh, Western way of thinking. So, um, so, so why do uh, awesome people like you continue to suffer? Because you think you're an awesome person and thereby you think that other people aren't awesome and you have to accept that, you know, Thoughts like that will cause suffering because you are attached to your ego. And if this sounds confrontational, I'm not saying I'm not. I am so attached to my ego, it's fucking crazy. Uh, it's frustrating, and I have a lot more work to do. But, you know, that's what I'm going to do because that's the point of this is... You just wake up every day and do what you can, you know, you know, live within the Dharma and, you know, right action, right speech. Uh, for me, uh, my kind of throughput is, uh, is do work. You know, that's the chop wood, carry water and, um, and do no harm. Those are my two things. If I can, if every day I can get a little bit of work done, something useful, uh, or creative, maybe not useful. I mean, that this, this, this podcast is useful, but it's creative. It's adding something, not taking away something and, so doing that, you know, that ticks the box or getting some writing done, getting some editing done. Um, anything like that, even getting reading done is, is things to better oneself, uh, things that are positive and good and things that are, you know, for me, it's, it's do no harm and get work done. And, you know, if you live your life that way, you will not suffer. Now, I'm not saying that's going to happen because I sort of live my my life that way and well, I suffer quite a bit, but uh, I got my own set of shit to work through. But I'm pretty sure once I work through it and keep doing this, I'm going to be fucking badass. I mean, look at me. I'm going to be sitting under a lotus tree, all fucking Buddha style. Be like, yo, what's up? Yeah, I'm Bodhisattva. I don't know why I would say, yo, what's up? I don't say that now. But apparently when I become the next Buddha, uh, I will go back in time and talk like an early 90s white kid pretending to rap. I don't know how that works, but, you know, that's the mystery of faith, as uh, as my Catholic upbringing says. I don't know if you've ever been at a Catholic church at one point. They say, and for some reason, when you're in a Catholic church, they always like to chant in this weird kind of high-pitched, like, Irish thing. But at one point, they go, I'll have the mystery of faith. 
It's it's like this Muppet priest. It's really stupid. Uh, no offense, Catholics. It's just your religious system is dumb. Um, I did that um thing again. Anyway, so that's your question. Why does suffering happen? Well, that's it. Uh, that is the nature of suffering as far as I understand it, but that is very much a kind of mangled, weird, uh, Buddhist view of things. And, frankly, I'm not a particularly happy person. So I don't know. But I would say this is, you know, you're con people continue to suffer because they want to suffer on some level. Um, it's, I would, I would, I would, I would compare it to smoking cigarettes. I quit cigarettes by doing this. I stopped smoking. Uh, I smoked for, um, I don't know, 13 years-ish, 14 years. And when I wanted to quit, what I did was quit. Because I didn't want to smoke anymore. If you don't want to smoke anymore, you won't. Here's why. Before you smoked, your hand never went into your pocket made the motions of pulling a cigarette out of a pack, then another hand went into a different pocket, made the motions of getting a lighter out, and then made the motions of lighting the lighter, and then uh, inhaled fake nothing. Your hands and your mouth and your lighter never did that before you smoked. This isn't something that you didn't have control of. You have control over all of it. So when you say, I don't want to smoke cigarettes anymore, if you truly don't, then you just don't. It's easy. Uh, the addiction for cigarettes is so mental, it's ridiculous. Nicotine doesn't last in your system that long. The, the, it's easy. But you have to commit to the thought of it, and then it's easy. If you're not committed to the thought of it, it's not easy. That's when quitting's really hard. Same as diets, where you like, want to kind of whittle away, and, you know, it's just, it's, it's difficult because you don't want to commit to it. So in the same way, the suffering thing is, um, you have to commit to it because you're making yourself suffer by comparing yourself to things and then, you know, comparing yourself to other people and then saying that it's a crappy-ass world and saying that, you know, things are happening, you know, things that happen to you, you know. Um, it doesn't. You choose to be happy, you choose to be unhappy, and it's making that choice that's easy. And, you know, for me, apparently I've got some kind of attachment to unhappy. You know, I've got this this uh, self-hatred thing that's still within me that I still have to, like, expurgate. But... You know, I'm working on it, I hope, I think. I think I'm getting slowly better at times until I, you know, spiral horribly out of control. And then, I just said horribly, but until I spiral horribly out of control and um, get worse. And then I get better. That's kind of the thing. You know what it is? Kind of like chopping wood, carrying water. It's a good, it's a good phrase, like, really. That, between chop wood, carry water, and om mani padme om, just repeat those three things in your head. Eventually, you're going to become some kind of saint. Sit on a mountain, wait for people to talk to you. But yes, so that is um, that is the nature of suffering, at least as far as I understand it. Um, also, I don't care if you bought my books. It's reading books that I care about, and you didn't do that. I'm not just saying that to you, Dustin. I'm saying that to anybody. I don't give a fuck about money. Money's stupid. Fuck money. Read the book. I want people to read the book. That's what I want. Because I wrote it so other people have it in their brain. Reading eh, money. Money's gross. I could have given it away to everybody, I would. So, read the book. It's called Periphery. It's on Amazon. If you're like, hey, I would like to read it, but I don't want to spend money, ask me. I'll send you a PDF. I don't give a fuck. That's what kind of, that's what kind of Buddha I am. I'm the kind of Buddha that will email random PDFs to people. That's right. All hail the mystery of faith. Namaste.